This is the London FinTech Podcast, brought to you by your host, Mike Ballaman, bridging the worlds of suits and t-shirts, of finance and technology, bringing you insights, stories, and inspiration from the golden age of opportunity and innovation happening in London right now. Hi, this is Mike Ballaman, and this is the London FinTech Podcast, episode 227, brought to you in association with Smart and theenlistedboard.com, and I'm delighted to be joined today by Saeed Murad to talk about fintech in the Middle East and North Africa region, aka MENA, M-E-N-A. Saeed is a partner at Global Ventures, who are an international venture capital firm based in Dubai, which invests across emerging markets, in specifically the Middle East and Africa. I think you've all heard of the Middle East, and we've also touched on Africa before. So, Without further ado, let's dive in. Plenty to talk about, so let's get on with the show. Good morning, Saif. Thank you for joining me on the show today. Thank you, Mike. Pleasure being here with you today, and thanks for hosting me. Yes, it's my pleasure too. Although I was saying, we started this sort of ungodly hour of 8.45, my time on a Friday morning. (laughs) I don't have many brain cells left these days. They've disappeared along with my hair. And so uh, early on a Friday morning, it's quite hard marshalling the half a dozen that are still on duty. But I've had a coffee. And as I was telling you before, it hasn't really kicked in yet. So you're going to be able to talk very freely. But maybe in about 10 minutes, it'll kick in and you'll have trouble getting a word in edgeways of phenomena listeners will recognise. Now, in terms of um, something interesting to to talk about to to kick off, I'm always after something sort of unique, which gets increasingly difficult after nine years. But I think we've got a very unique topic in your case in that, um, well, how can I put this simply? You almost bought Liverpool Football Club once, or roughly speaking, something like that. Sure. (laughs) Not not in a personal capacity. (laughs) That would be nice. I did work for a private equity firm that that did look from Dubai at investing into and buying Liverpool Football Club. But this was couple of decades ago almost so uh, life a lifetime ago I guess uh, so to speak I am passionate about football though and I'm an Arsenal fan so shout out to any Arsenal fans listening so just on that sentence of course I, I can't let that one go by without asking whether that's an oxymoron whether that sentence isn't containing an internal contradiction of interest in football and Arsenal Football Club or maybe you have a sort of masochistic streak or something <laughs> well the, the, depends on when you started watching football that's true you see listeners will know something that you don't know that uh, well, I was about to say we all have a cross to bear, but maybe we've got a crescent to bear in the Middle East. But the cross I used to bear uh, many decades ago was being an Aston Villa fan, you see. So um, it also begins with A, but I think over the time, maybe Arsenal has had a little bit more success than Aston Villa. Ever so slightly, but also a lot of heartache recently. Yes, quite, quite. Yes, you had a manager who seemed to be quite content with keeping you in the sort of top half a dozen, but uh, never quite going the the extra distance. So I mean, just briefly, because obviously on this show we talk about finance once or twice, and financialization of assets and buying stuff. But when you're talking about the private equity world, and well, I was about to say a real thing like Liverpool Football Club, I mean, I guess a football club is something of an abstract thing, goodwill and all these other funny things going around. Just in case uh, any of the listeners out there look at buying a football club themselves, maybe a more modest scale one, how on earth does one start the spreadsheet jockeys off putting a number on something like Liverpool Football Club? I mean, well, you know, to me, it's kind of think of a number. <laughs> I guess it's 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 tricky to turn sort of passion into an Excel sheet and, and have passion building an Excel sheet. But think of it like any other business. There's different legs and drivers to the way the revenue is generated and grown. There are different ways in which the P&L will flow. So 
the definitions of revenue, COGS, gross profit, down into SGNA, etc., all the way down to EBITDA and then net profit, will ultimately still fundamentally stand on their own two feet as a business. And so you take away the sort of football anecdotal aspect and you take a step back and look at it as a fundamental business and you'll see that there are actually sound fundamentals to the way these businesses are run. There are different ways of looking at commercializing these businesses, whether it's partnerships with uh, media companies, whether it's the um, commercial agreements with the different sort of kit sponsors or, uh, or, or what have you. There's many, many different avenues. There's the match day revenue through ticket sales, through F&B, through different elements. And so all of a sudden you're sitting there and you're looking at this in a very different lens. So you're not thinking just about sort of the 22 players on field kicking a ball about, but rather the actual fundamentals behind a business and the way it's run. Maybe that's why Liverpool Football Club was so good, because I, I didn't notice it at the time, but if they were putting 22 football players on the pitch, that would definitely give them an advantage when they were playing against 11, actually. And the, the interesting thing about that, I mean, going back to only having half a dozen brain cells on duty this morning. 22 with two teams, right? You can't have one team playing against itself. <laughs> yes, that's true. That's true. <laughs> Aston Villa used to have about a third of the team playing against itself and scoring own goals and uh, uh, generally messing it up. But going back to thinking about this extremely simplistically and having back in the day seen lots of valuations attached to all kinds of uh, things by corporate finance back in the, the days when I was sort of risk and, and we were trying to decide what price to float things at and all that. At a super simplistic level, I've never been quite sure whether this thing called goodwill is real, which obviously it is to a certain extent, or whether it's bullshit or whether it's a bit of both because Again, very simplistic, what would happen is that corporates finance, oh, we've got this business, blah, 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 and the spreadsheet jockey says this, then we you know, invent random number, and that's the goodwill. In the same way that if you're an analyst investing in the equity market, you may look at you know, BP or something like that, and there's, you can come out with all the spreadsheet numbers, and then there's this sort of number which is completely different, which is its market valuation, and then, again, just super simplistically, schematically, the accountants wave their hand and say, oh, that's, that's goodwill. And, and obviously, goodwill exists to the extent that something like BP is above and beyond the reality and Coca-Cola is above and beyond the reality of just sort of the cans that go out there. But in the case of a, a football club, is there, any, is there any approach to valuing what you might call, I don't know, intangibles or, or goodwill, you know, very simplistically? Yes, in short. Um, I assume there was, otherwise private equity wouldn't have a, <laughs> a model. <laughs> as you referenced, there, there, there is this notion of um, intangible assets. So the brand value, attributable brand value, etc., would sit underneath that bucket. And so when you think about something like, let's go back to Liverpool Football Club or Arsenal Football Club, the brand recognition the world over, um, the ability to sort of commercialize that brand, leverage it for penetration into different markets, whether it's on the commercial side or the media side or what have you, does provide that additional sort of quote-unquote value to, 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 any, to, to any entity. And in this case... A football club. And so, yes, there is an element of it, in short. But how you value it, that's sort of where we can go into a philosophical debate on whether valuation is an art or a science or a mix of both. Quite, yes. Well, based on what I've seen, it's a little bit of a, a mix of both. And ultimately, the intangibles unquantifiable in a precise sense. And, and think of Liverpool Football Club. I'm having a flash, flashback to watching Top Gear um, when, they went, and they were, when they were the old Top Gear clocks and Al going around the Shan, it was one of their specials, the northeast state in, in Burma, and they were in the absolutely middle of the nowhere. I mean, the Shan has, I don't know, one road and one school or something, and, it, and it's a 
bigger than about 10 times Britain, I don't know, whatever. Anyway, it's something, it's something like that. And um, they had this sort of obviously set up thing where they were saying, you know, all, look, all, the, all the villagers are amazed. They've probably never seen a white man before or something like that. And, you know, we're, we're so cool and all this. And then they stood, stepped to one side and they were standing in front of some sort of shack of a bar. And there were pictures of Liverpool Football Club in the Shan State, miles from anywhere. So, you know, that's an example of where the fact that something is intangible doesn't mean it's not real. In the same way that happiness is intangible, you can't pass me your happiness, I can't show you my happiness, but happiness or sadness is something that's sort of real in a different um, sense. Okay, well, having moved on from that, maybe I should do a podcast on buying football clubs just for a change. You've mentioned about private equity. Would you like to tell the listeners a little bit about how come you're here, or rather there, as we're talking through a computer today, in terms of your career journey and your background and what led you to where you are and your current interests slash commercial focus? Happy to. So I was born and raised in Jordan and then moved to London for my undergrad. I studied engineering at Imperial College um, and then moved out to Dubai. I started my career in private equity, um, as mentioned earlier, spent a few years in private equity and uh, investment banking um, before um, getting an MBA and then moving ever so slightly into consulting for a short stint, but then really went in and started sort of operating and running businesses. So I like to think of myself as a, as a sort of investor slash operator slash business builder, if you will, turned venture capitalist. I ran a few companies before um, getting into VC, including joining as a, in a senior leadership role at a post-series A startup, helping them raise a series B round and so on. So the experience in combining sort of that investor hat and from my private equity days with that sort of business building hat and the operating hat is what sort of set me up um, for a career in venture capital. Yes, and I can certainly see that studying things in the round is immensely valuable and it's something that let's say 20-somethings given I've been talking to 20-somethings recently about career progression 20-somethings and the rest of us need to bear in mind because it's very easy to be linear you get some kind of job and then you know you get another job and then after a while you find that if you stay being I don't know let's say a developer then actually after five years of being a developer, you in the next year you'll get paid more for being a developer than, for example, going and, I don't know, doing the photocopying and fetching the coffees, metaphorically speaking, at a VC, because you'll have nothing to, to add there. But the benefit of that, and I recall back in the day, the model was called the Japanese spiral staircase model. You, you go up, but also in Japanese companies you would go around. So by the time you got much further up in a Japanese company, you would actually... You, as it were, lived metaphorically in all these different countries. You'd lived in, in Britain, you'd lived in America, you'd lived in Jordan, you'd lived in Dubai. And you see things from that perspective, and that gives you a much more 3D model compared to, and I'm not dissing this model because it works for many people, compared to the linear model where, for the sake of argument, you've done your degree in engineering and you became a VC on that day and you carry on being a VC. You know, that way you will end up picking up everything and, and putting it together once you've been a VC for 30 years because de facto you'll have tripped over the things you need to know. So let's talk a bit about fintech in MENA. I don't like the word MENA actually, it just sounds very mean, but M-E-N-A. Maybe you'll give us a little bit of a historical background to, I don't know, technology, finance, all that kind of stuff um, in the region. Uh, And perhaps uh, just before you do that, it might be useful for me and the listeners to define a little bit, whether it's precise or not, going back to vague things, where the Middle East is and, and where it ends. I mean, um, if you start at, I don't know, Lebanon or Jordan, you can go quite far east and eventually it kind of turns into China. And I literally don't know where 
the quotes Middle East, unquotes, whatever that means, ends. Sure, happy to. I mean, uh, this isn't a defined sort of per se, but rather what's sort of become a norm. MENA is the uh, 22 Arabic-speaking countries from the GCC, the Levant area, into North Africa. So uh, starting with Egypt into Francophone North Africa, all the way out west. That would be sort of the, 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 the normal definition, if you will, of, of, of MENA. When people tend to look at MENA from a business and finance perspective, it is quite common to tag on markets like um, Turkey, for example, as, as, as an ancillary. So it wouldn't fall under the definition, but it would sort of be adjacent, as would Pakistan, as an example. So even if you look at research that's being published about sort of funding in the region and so on, people tend to bucket those together and say Middle East, Africa, Turkey and Pakistan. So that's sort of where people tend to bucket from a geographical perspective, if you will. I see. Interesting. Well, it's a bit like the Scandinavia one, although Scandinavia is a little bit better defined in that the term in different contexts uh, is used differently. And when you're in, coming at it from an investment perspective, then obviously the, having some depth in the investment market. I, mean, I wouldn't have personally guessed that Pakistan was part of the Middle East. It's not. People tend to sort of gravitate towards the market and look at it as well. But the Middle East and North Africa per se is the 22 Arabic-speaking countries that formulate the GCC, the Levant, North Africa. Yes. And I, mean, I, th- I think the thing that I think if you'd asked me, uh, I would have guessed that Persia slash Iran over the past centuries was not necessarily part of the, the, the Middle East, although looked at from a different perspective, through a different lens. And obviously, Iran's got its own particular foibles now as it always has had in many different ways. Then from a different perspective, there is this, you know, whole Islamic culture region, including the Ottomans and, and the Turks, which itself has various internal consistencies or, or, or similarities as well as um, differences. Good. Okay. So having defined it um, in that way, uh, obviously we're talking about some very different regions. I mean, West Africa, Northwest Africa isn't exactly identical to um, Iraq or the Gulf <laughs> on the other side of Africa, uh, or even uh, Turkey. So if you were to Break it down into the, the regions you mentioned, the Gulf, the, the Levant. I actually bought last year the, a, a copy of a book on the, the history of the Levant Company. I haven't got around to reading it yet, actually. But the, it's been an enormously influential uh, part of the, the, the I don't know, European, Middle East uh, trade for centuries, if not millennia. What are the main characteristics of the sort of history and background of, of, of tech and fintech in the Gulf, in the Levant and, and, and in North Africa? Sure, happy to. I'll, I'll, I'll start by talking about sort of the broader MENA region and then sort of zoom into the, the, the different sub-regions, if you will. In the Middle East and Africa last year, 2022, about 3.2 billion of funding, according to Magnet, roughly in, in, in totality for the tech space, if you will, of which just shy of a billion dollars went into fintech specifically. Historically, what we've seen is a lot of development and origination starting in markets like the Levant and Egypt. So if you look at uh, where some of the quote-unquote older companies were born, the likes of Maktoub, which was acquired by Yahoo, or Souq, which ultimately then became a UAE company and then exited to Amazon here, Those are companies that were sort of born in Jordan and then sort of became part of the GCC. And so this phenomenon of crossing borders and operating across market is something that's been around for a while. 
So rather than look at this in isolation and look at these regions in isolation, we do look at them sort of as potential complementarity, whether language is the common ground or some form of sort of similarities in terms of culture, in terms of behaviors from a user perspective, from a business perspective. These are things that can actually be transported cross-border. And so that's where sort of the, the, the definition comes from, if you will. The GCC has historically been where businesses have managed to grow successfully because of the uh, stronger purchasing power in markets like Saudi Arabia and the UAE as examples. Egypt, on the other hand, out of a population of 400 million across the Middle East and Africa, about 100 million of those sit in Egypt. And so just the sheer volume there is quite sizable. And those are sort of some of the nuances around these markets. Businesses tend to look for success um, in operating in markets like Saudi, UAE and Egypt. That sort of annex is one that quite a few early stage companies have tried to tackle, albeit there are nuances for each of these markets that would need to be addressed when companies are scaling cross-border. Yes, and as I mentioned about the Levant, but it also definitely applies to the the UAE Gulfy states. There has been a a culture slash history there of trading far off for thousands of years, which perhaps hasn't been in, in some parts of uh, North Africa. I mean, going back to the, the Carthage days with Carthage versus um, Rome and that kind of thing. So there was just, it's kind of in the in the blood, really, in, in, the, in those places. And I mean, in a, to an extent, to my little knowledge, why, why is Abu Dhabi there? Why is Dubai there? Because actually it was these sort of, on the coast, it was these ports that were trading quite a far couple of thousand years ago, if not, if not further back in the past. And actually one thing that sort of just comes to my mind, talking about my brain not working, come sort of Friday evening or something when we just want to watch some rubbish. Quite often what we do is just watch rubbish like um, these various channels that fly around the world and test first class products. And, you know, in terms of first class aeroplane travel for wealthy VCs who make too much money in their funds, a couple of the best airlines in the world are Etihad and uh, Emirates. You know, especially on the A380, where there's a shower on board and um, all that kind of stuff. So those parts of the UAE, I mean, Sharjah I've been to, I bought a very nice red silk carpet, but I think the Dubai and Abu Dhabi stand out significantly to me, and to a little extent, Qatar. They're just very good at doing business full stop. Whereas, for example, we'll come into the regions in North Africa, the ability to do um, business well has varied. I mean, off the top of my head, about 5,000 years ago, Egypt led the world for a sort of couple of thousand years, and then it's had its ups and downs. And it's really interesting, actually. I read Dominic Frisbee's book, I've forgotten what it was called now, about tax o- over time. One of the interesting points he was making was that the early Islamic imperial expansion across North Africa was very kind of free markety, low taxi, and, and you know, the first uh, conquests led to great economic prosperity spreading across the southern part of the Mediterranean which it always, for some reason, I don't quite understand, maybe it's the sand being less profitable than, you know, the greasy Rome, Spainy bit at the top. And it was very successful. But of course, over time, uh, as we've seen in Britain over the last century, what happens, of course, is that the state, however it's defined, <laughs> raises taxes, attracts more money to itself. And, and these things come in, um, come in waves. But yes, I've always just been impressed by, notwithstanding the waves of history and all these things that happen over thousands of years, uh, how Dubai and Abu Dhabi in particular have remained successful for so long. I mean, just, just on that particular region, let's start there because that's where your office is at the moment. As somebody who lives there, do you think that what I'm saying is just a far too high level, far too romantic a vision? Or do you think there's literally something in the blood or the DNA or the culture which means that it is always prospering. There is an element to, of, of, of sort of truth to, to what you're talking about. And, and I guess if, if you want to fundamentally take a step back, it starts with where the UAE is strategically located, sort of connecting East and West. 
So it's always been a hub to connect the world globally. And uh, the birth of Emirates and then later down the line Etihad Airlines was sort of predicated around that. So if you take a step back and you think about how the world was interconnected, historically land way back when, the UAE and, and, and the GCC slash Middle East region was sort of, again, centrally located and, and, and acted as that land port or hub, if you will. It then evolved into sort of the seaport model, if you will. And that's where you saw the growth of entities like ZP World, for example, and then the global expansion that they were able to have. And finally, sort of the airport notion, if you will, with the birth of Emirates in the 80s and then it had later down the line and what they've managed to build out and really sort of successfully achieve as a hub. So again, that interconnectivity and the geolocation, if you will, plays a strategic role. It is part of the DNA in the blood. So the trade, import, export has always been something that the region is quite known for and something that you know, you'd benefit from where you're strategically located. And that continues to be the case today. Yes, exactly. And I'm, I'm sure the, the building of the Suez Canal really reformed the position of these places, which were up this sort of quite large creek, uh, the Red Sea, uh, in that then there's a direct connection to the, the Levant. And just going back to the history of it, I was remembering when you were talking the fact that um, when the Portuguese finally, and took quite some time, managed to work their way all around the coast of Africa and set up various sort of friendly bits and, and then started bringing the spices in, the Levant Company and such, which were importing all these spices, which were very much needed in, in Europe to give the food some flavour, which it didn't really have, and to stop all your meat going off and stuff like that. There was literally a 10x reduction in price or a 10x increase in margin by going round. OK, well, look, as we're talking about the GCC, why don't uh, you give us just uh, a little uh, overview there of fintech in the GCC, and then we'll move sort of you know, further left and further up in terms of geography. Sure, happy to. So uh, I, th- I think... The, the, the long and the short of it is across the Middle East and Africa, you'll find that there's different needs in different markets, financial inclusion, banking the unbanked being more of a theme when you look into markets like Africa as a continent, the Levant to a certain extent, and maybe a little bit less so when you're moving towards the Gulf where there's a higher portion of the population that's quote unquote banked. The development of the banking infrastructure across the region has been quite robust. There are a number of banks servicing the client base that exists in country. But the core thought process is how do you extend banking services to those that have typically not been able to access them? And the answer is you use technology to scale. Enter fintech. This needs to be done in a sort of regulated and structured manner, which has been the case in the evolution that we've seen in the market over let's call it the past decade or so, if we're going to just simplify. Over the past decade, you've seen the entry of different types of players, whether it's at the early stages, you know, the digital payment enablers, the uh, uh, payment infrastructure players, their partnerships with banks and banking providers and sort of rolling out all the way through to the progressiveness that we're seeing today around technology like open banking, regulation around open banking starting to sort of become much more prevalent. And what we've seen in Bahrain in terms of an open banking law existing in Saudi, the announcements around open banking and the thought process around how that evolves. Again, banks are also very conscious of the fact that cost to serve is quite high when you're looking at traditional infrastructure. And so the affinity to partner with fintechs is something that has been increasing over time. You're seeing a lot more of it. And so... That, in addition to the uh, launch of services such as, you know, Buy Now, Pay Later and other such platforms is what's led to sort of the development and the growth of the fintech industry. As mentioned earlier, uh, close to a third of all funding across the Middle East and Africa last year went into fintech. 
So it's it, it is a high growth sector. It is quite important, and and I will say we've we've been investing in fintech quite actively over the past sort of five years or so from when Global Ventures started in 2018, and we do so in a sort of thesis driven manner. We did publish a report. It's available on our website global.vc/thoughts. Or just go to global.vc and then click on thoughts and you'll find fintech in mina as a report that's been published a lot of what's in there while the report was published in 2020 still holds okay and then maybe i should have asked this at the beginning and it is a slightly silly question because it depends how you define the word fintech and uh, when we did fintech in india recently the roots in india went back quite a long way i mean fag packetly as they performed in 2005 in the uk and that's been peer-to-peer and then a lot of the other peer-to-peers and fx's started about 2010 or whatever whatever your definition when do you think that uh, in gcc and also in the general region when do you think fintech started did it start in roughly 2000 or did it start sort of later was it a catching up exercise or just as always there were some sort of early adopters and early fintechs and it wasn't popular and trendy and then the last few years vcs turned up and chucked lots of money on the fires and see if it sort of you know they leapt up no i mean if i i, I wouldn't look at it that way I, I i think much more sort of core so the use of technology to help in the prevalence of financial services is sort of what you would broadly define fintech as and if you look at companies early on that started enabling sort of point of sale terminals at different outlets, etc. That's when you can start to see the first sort of penetration of elements like fintech. Then those that start providing the technology and the rails for credit card, credit card penetration, shifting away from cash-based economies to more sort of digital methods, if you will, or or non-cash methods, if you will. That's where you start to see those sort of components coming in. That has then evolved into different solutions, whether it's mobile wallets or whether it's different services or whether it's bank accounts or digital banks coming out with a lower cost to serve through a digital presence rather than having to build branches to service customers. The ability to utilize online banking, interconnectivity through online banking, that's sort of the early days of fintech. And then what we see today is an aggregation amalgamation of a lot of these types of services being nuanced. You mentioned peer-to-peer, whether it's peer-to-peer or whether it's sort of cross-border remittance. The ability to remit, particularly for people, that expats that work in, in some of the markets across MENA, the ability to sort of remit money back home or whether to remit locally, which is sort of the, the peer-to-peer model that you were talking about. There are businesses that are tackling all of these different problems, if you will, with unique solutions across the region. You know, one of the important things to keep in consideration is the growth in financial literacy is something that people have been very conscious about here as well. And so there are a lot of sort of different actors that are coming in and playing a role in trying to help increase financial literacy to allow that increase in financial inclusion. Yes. OK, so look, um, that's obviously com- completely true. And um, uh, around the world, fintech is something that's evolved and, and banks are using computers from the 1960s onwards and uh, it's ever changing. But to, to make it a more of a sort of a digital question, oh, well, that didn't really exist 10 years ago and it kind of started five years ago. The American model, which I say is American model because it didn't really exist over here pre the dot com boom, uh, certainly uh, of venture capital firms spreading around the world and they tend to spread into regions when there's a quite a bit going on and the the market has a capacity to absorb a billion i mean for the sake of argument i won't mention a country because somebody will get offended somewhere insert country that you can think of that's a little bit what we used to call backwards and not very economically developed you know that a vc won't be there because there's nothing to spend your money on so 
Um, in the tech space, and, and maybe the fintech space, one of the kind of parties you went to where there were lots of other VC firms there at lunch or, or in the evening in, in the region, have they been, have VCs been around for 20 years, 10, 5? Plenty of VCs, not just one or two, but you know, there's a, a VC community as it were. Sure, I mean, the, the, the emergence of the VC community, I guess, would have been sort of in, in, in the um, 2010 plus from there, I would say was sort of the true emergence of a community. There were players that were operating in the VC space earlier than that, obviously, but as we talk about sort of the emergence of a community, I would say that's roughly when it when it started in in, in the Middle East and North Africa, and uh, since then it's grown quite a bit. There are different um, investors across uh, different sort of stages now, across different asset classes and across different sectors. So we're starting to see that nuance happening now. Excellent. Well, before we move on to the um, other uh, major subdivisions um, of Mina, you mentioned one or two companies already, but maybe you give uh, listeners an idea of what two or three iconic fintechs from the region uh, have been to the extent that any listener wanting to get a bit more involved can actually just google them and check them out for themselves sure i'll talk about a couple from our portfolio the first one is paymob out of egypt they do uh, payment infrastructure specifically digital payments pos terminals so online offline payments if you will as well as mobile wallets and they're expanding into the gulf another champion out of the uae is tabby it's uh, one of the leading buy now pay later platforms operating out of here recently announced a large funding round as well and um just because it's because of the proximity of the announcement as well I'll mention the third one i know you mentioned two but i'll, I'll mention the third one tarabot gateway which is an open banking um platform announced a 32 million dollar raise yesterday they're operational in the gcc those are just sort of three of the names that are in our portfolio that i'd like to uh, mention Excellent. Well, that's the perfect VC answer, which is to <laughs> pick companies in particular that you'd like to see the, the value uh, increasing. So uh, good for you there. And again, just in terms of at a very high level, uh, hearing what you say, in terms of globalisation from a positive trade perspective, uh, rather than a kind of um, cultural slash American empire economic perspective, it is, of course, notable that in the world of the technology we have, how samey things come. I mean, the fact that there's some, you know, open banking e blah blah he was raising 32 million i could be speaking to anybody almost anywhere in the in the world in terms of the uh, major geographies and and hearing such a thing so uh, and to that extent the, the the scope for geographic arbitrage which was a, a major driver of technological change around the world or indeed just change which is oh i don't know britain invents the steam train someone goes oh that's a good idea we'll build a steam train uh, in this different part of the world um it's how rapidly in the technology world, how rapidly everything spreads. I mean, for the sake of argument, not for the sake of argument, everyone in these major markets can look at ChatGPT today. It's just an instantaneous spread these days as opposed to building railways, which because it was physical and took a long time, spread much slower. It's like things used to spread at the speed of sound, as it were, metaphorically speaking, and now they spread literally at the speed of light. So look, so that's that's the core of it. And then maybe you just give us uh, a little bit of coverage. You know, we'd love to hear more, but uh, in the time available of the, Levante, North Africa areas, more in terms of what their deltas are to the core model you've just established there. Sure, I mean, I, I wouldn't say there's a there's a delta, but rather nuances, and, and and the nuances come sort of from the a demographics and b sort of customer base slash purchasing power, and what the needs are versus the wants. I think if if we talk about sort of the Levant. You're talking about countries where there is a developed banking infrastructure, there is strong regulation. Historically, these are, these markets are sort of perhaps less affluent, but definitely um, very strong birthplaces of talent, if you will. So a lot of the initial sort of development happens out there. Companies do have, quote unquote, technology back offices out present in, in markets like 
Jordan, like Lebanon, like Egypt, where you can sort of really foster and build out that talent while enable them to operate from home. And in terms of some exemplars of good fintechs in the Levant region? Happy to. So uh, I, I did mention out of Egypt, just North Africa, so we, we cover it again. I did mention Paymob. Out of the Levant, there are several players. We haven't invested yet in, in any of the fintechs that have come out of there because we've looked at ones that can work on, on more sizable or scalable markets. But there are a few players. I, I won't mention the name specifically now just because of the um, because we're, we're in assessment mode. But there are some that are operating in the financial literacy space, for example, that are quite interesting and, and, and others. And I'd urge people to sort of really continue to observe these markets and look at the way in which they can start there and then scale cross-border. The beauty of technology is the ability to scale cross-border effectively and efficiently. Excellent. And so moving on to North Africa, which we touched upon somewhat in terms of the major uh, market or two up there in LFP on Africa. How do you see North Africa from a fintech perspective? Again, nascent, but developing quite rapidly. One of the first unicorns out of the region was actually a fintech out of Egypt called uh, Fauri, just anecdotally, who offered digital banking services or, or agent banking services, if you will. The market is developing quite fast. Um, as you move west from Egypt into Francophone North Africa, the VC markets in general are more nascent. The technology markets there are generally more nascent, but catching up quite quickly. So they're sort of definitely on the radar and there are companies that are coming out from there. Funding is increasing. The creation and the entrepreneurial ecosystem is starting to grow quite significantly. And so we continue to monitor and look at increasing activity there. And perhaps it's a question I should have asked before, whether there's any dividing line. And I have been for some time trying to line up a, a, a podcast on this particular topic, which will happen at some point, but it's just taking a while to organise. In terms of financing and banking, we didn't touch on the whole point of Islamic finance. Um, Marabaha, as, a, as far as I understand, the Quran forbids interest, uh, which is kind of what the Catholics used to do about 500 years ago, until we didn't, and it's perhaps a bit of a pity given the money supply and inflation that we're seeing now, and just endless printing of money. And Islamic banking has been a thing for quite a long time, but it's a thing that doesn't universally apply, for a whole bunch of reasons perhaps, uniformly across the countries uh, that where Islam is the major cultural factor, including, for example, as far off as, as Indonesia. So are there some areas in which sort of more strict Islamic finance is followed within sort of fintech? I mean, for example, in, in Saudi, I assume that you know, they have the odd Islamic finance uh, as opposed to something they'll give you 7.5% uh, uh, interest, which wouldn't be Marabaha. I, I wouldn't frame it that way. I would frame it differently. I would say there are quote-unquote traditional offerings that are available and there are um, what are termed Sharia compliant or Islamic finance um, offerings that are available and it's down to, to sort of what the users would would seek and what the users would want so if you go into, into some of these markets let's say for example in the UAE you do have the quote-unquote traditional and you do have the Sharia compliant um, offerings and it's down to users and individuals to, to look at what they prefer to do how that has made its way into fintech is there are some fintechs that, that offer Sharia compliant products exclusively some that offer a mix and some that don't necessarily offer it. So it just depends on what market share they're going after and what specific demographic they're trying to capture. Interesting. Well, that's a, a nice distinguishing flavour. So just very briefly then, Said, because you've given us very interesting coverage of the region, away from generalities which would apply in every country in the world, which is, oh, I see technologies being ever-increasing importance and I see these areas growing, blah, 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 blah. Are there any sort of distinguishing factors that you see about the MENA uh, region in terms of the development of fintech over the next few years? 
yes. And I'd say in its simplest form, it's the ability to increase financial inclusion through allowing those that have historically not been served to be served. There is an opportunity to do well and do good at the same time. And so this provides a unique market opportunity. The growth can be what can be termed as um, leapfrogging. If you look at what happened in telco in Africa um, years ago, um, there is a similar notion of what can happen in fintech specifically with access to financial services um, being paramount to everyone. Excellent. Well, again, sometimes if I've got the stomach for it, which I haven't yet, uh, perhaps I might do a podcast on financial inclusion um, because like most things in life, it goes through this sort of yin-yang duality. The positive is um, making available to people uh, with less wealth services that those have taken for granted who have more wealth, which is obviously um, a good thing. And the, the prior uh, podcast with Goji was on opening up um, private markets to uh, the general investor beyond pension funds. So that's a good thing. The shadow side of, of inclusion is quite often that I see that not in your region, but let's just say in the UK, which I know a little bit about, as, oh, let's make everybody customer of banks so banks can rip off the poorest people in society as well as uh, everyone else, and let's sort of shepherd everybody towards CBDCs and these kind of things. But that's another podcast for another time. Anyway, uh, that's been very fascinating. Before we wrap up the show, I'd like to thank all you listeners uh, out there, particularly the listeners in MENA and my brand partners for the podcast. Smart is transforming pensions and retirement worldwide. Their leading-edge retirement tech platform propelled them to success in the UK. Now they're operating on four continents and working with partners like Zurich and JP Morgan. Find out more at www.smart.co. Theunlistedboard.com, your guide to entrepreneurial governance and how you can start making your board an engine of growth today. Well, sorry, time has gone very quickly, uh, especially as it does when you're talking about a, a topic which literally we could keep zooming in for all day and you spend your life zooming in to the lowest level, which is, oh, I think maybe we'll invest at this firm and what is the price and what is the, the valuation, even if you're not um, buying football clubs these days or looking at buying football clubs these days. So maybe you'd like to tell us a little bit about Global Ventures. What are you selling to who? What would you like more of to be even bigger and better tomorrow uh, in case any of the listeners out there are interested in, in buying your products or helping you in one way or another or becoming part of the uh, your global expansion or regional expansion before you take over the world perhaps sure happy to and i'll uh, I'll, I'll just say this i mean as, as as a venture capital firm we invest in emerging markets founders on a mission to change the world um, in specific right now across the middle east and africa and so if you are a founder in the regions in which we invest we are sector agnostic We'd love to take a look at um, how we could potentially help and be a part of your journey. Don't hesitate to reach out to us, um, global.vc, or on our LinkedIn page as well. We're quite active, we're responsive. Please feel free to reach out and connect with us. Excellent. Well, that's been very fascinating. As always, when we talk about regions, whether it's Southeast Asia or India or Africa, at an abstract level, it sounds like it's a small thing, but I assume that you spend quite a bit of time on airplanes because actually it's quite big. <laughs> from from left to right uh, and top to bottom using uh, geographic terms and so the practice of doing what you make relatively light of can be quite tiring in terms of flitting around between all these countries uh, and it makes VCs in London look positively lazy because they have to catch a tube well, actually sorry we would never see a VC on a tube good god uh, they <laughs> they get their private limousines their stretch limos around um, around town to their customers but uh, we have to go a little bit further um, and I thank you very much for that uh, overview on behalf of all the listeners and I wish you and Global Ventures every success in the future thank you so much pleasure being here today
Thanks for listening. If you are in need of a non-executive or advisory director with deep expertise, experience and contacts in the worlds of both traditional FS and fintech, or unique insight into how to make your board an engine of growth today, contact me at mike at mikeballiman.com. If you just need one-off advice in these areas via clarity.fm slash mikeballiman. We could sit in a vendor all day Watching the firelight dance Watching the firelight dance We could walk in the mountains before dawn Watching a happy moon ride Watching a happy moon ride Come away from the city With the tarmac so dead And the people so sad Come away from the city With the faces so grey With the pain of the Mountains and the trees Can you see what I mean? Can you see what I mean? We fit in between the earth and the sky Kiss the city goodbye Wave the city goodbye Wave the city goodbye Watch the firelight dance with me. 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 Watch the firelight dance.